0: Oh my! We'll stick there. Sorry about that. Buzzing. There's something going on in my acoustic. I hear it buzzing. Okay, here we go. I don't want to play a song with the song's The guitar's buzzing. I got a capo on. That's why. Here we go.
1: On. For the Bible does say Believe in Jesus Christ And your sins are washed away I'm a lonely sinner indeed need of God's grace And through my faith in Jesus i see Him face to face Well, it's all right It's all right now For well, I've been justified Sanctified Well, it's all right It's alright now I've been glorified No longer terrified Every single day I'm gonna give my praise to you Yeah, yeah Every single day I'm gonna give my thanks to you Yeah, yeah I'm feeling so groovy For the joy that's in me my guilt and shame is gone for the cross has set me free The blood of the Savior has opened the way To meet our Holy God and walk with Him each day Well, it's alright, it's alright now For I've been justified, sanctified But well, it's alright, it's alright now I've been glorified, no longer terrified Every single day I'm gonna give my thanks to you Yeah, yeah Every single day I'm gonna give my praise to you Yeah, yeah I'm going to heaven Hallelujah Love you, Jesus Love you, Jesus, yeah I'm going to heaven Hallelujah Love you, Jesus Thank you, Jesus, yeah I'm going to heaven Where the angels all sing The praises of the Lamb Who is our Savior King I'm getting ready For the day when I go into the presence of the God I love and know. Oh, well, it's alright. It's alright now. For I've been justified, sanctified. Well, it's alright. It's alright now. For I've been glorified, no longer terrified. everything single day I'm gonna give my thanks to you yeah yeah Everything I'm gonna give my praise to you yeah yeah I'm going to heaven hallelujah love you Jesus love you Jesus yeah I'm going to heaven hallelujah love you Jesus Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All right.
0: Let's, uh, let's do one more. <laughs> I'm in the mood here. Oh, okay.
1: save the day. I never will forget the moment he found a way. So I will rejoice in my Lord, my God, for he can save me. So I will trust in his name. Insoluble. In all of my circumstances, impossible I know that with my God there is a solution For His power to deliver brings resolution So I will rejoice in my Lord, my God he can save me
0: i right back. Alright, uh, good morning again to all of you. Couldn't get my glasses off there. And then uh, jump, uh, bumping into myself this morning. Yeah, that, that first song, I had the, uh, had a capo on it, on the fourth fret, and, uh, for that song, I'm going to heaven, I wrote a long time ago now, probably over, over ten years, that's for sure. And, um, I heard it, I was like, you know, I do a sound check before I, before every service, you know, the music, everything, sure, everything. So, I must have, I, I must have adjusted the capo, and it, and, uh, and it, and it created a buzz in the strings. And I was like, I can hear that. You probably couldn't hear it, but I could hear it. But uh, so I just said, stop it. I'm not going to play this song. And then I listened to the playback and I'd be upset with myself to, to play it like that. But I could hear it. it. was To me, it was pretty pronounced. So you probably heard it too. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so that uh, that's a, I like that song. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Uh, that's part of my. That's from my roots. So I, mean, I like the chording and the and the and the, uh, and the the lyrics and the the uh, the vocal. I like I like singing and playing that song. It's a great song. I Haven't played it in a while here. So, but um, yeah. So uh, we're going to uh, we're, continuing, we're continuing our study of, of uh, Ephesians. We just started it actually on Tuesday. This series on Ephesians and today we'll be, as you can see on the board, we'll be uh, continuing our introduction and uh, and also you know the introduction. Let me see the. I think we had. Uh, I have, let's see if I can hear the outline that I had the other day uh, for this introduction. Yeah, we're going to be doing, if you can see on the board here, I created this little outline for our introduction. We noted on uh, Tuesday the canonicity of Ephesians, uh, which was never doubted by the early church. It was immediately accepted as, as inspired by God. And then today we're going to be looking at the authorship, and we touched upon the authorship I, on Tuesday, uh, with pseudonymity, uh, a lot of people now uh, in scholarship and biblical scholarship think Ephesians is a pseudonymous letter, meaning someone posing as Paul because they revered him. And uh, uh, as I pointed out, the church has never accepted pseudonymous writings. And in fact, Paul was, would uh, have his own mark at the end of his letters, like Colossians and Galatians and 2 Thessalonians, to uh, protect it against forgeries, people saying they were him and they're not. And that could have happened with Second Thessalonians because some people were telling the church there that the day of the Lord had, had begun, and so Paul said, you know, whether it's you know a letter or in a letter or wherever it is saying that the day of the Lord has come, that's not me. And so uh, we uh, uh, so that we studied that in Second Thessalonians, and then also in this introduction, we'll be noting who the recipients of this letter, which is actually a, 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 a up for grabs there too. Um, A little bit of dissent on that is kind of difficult because, uh, you know, you look at the beginning of this letter, it's to the Ephesians, right? The believers in Ephesus, well, it thinks it's pretty cut and dry. Well, there are a lot of manuscripts, as I pointed out on, uh, and we'll do this when we get to the verse, verse uh, one. But um, there's a lot of uh, manuscripts that don't have it. The earliest and best manuscripts we have don't have in Ephesus. And so, and there's also no personal greetings from Paul, which you expect when he spent three years there in Ephesus as his home base. So, as we'll see, that's a, it's actually a, a circular letter, uh, meaning it's d- not only directed at the church in Ephesus, but all the churches throughout the Roman province of Asia. Kind of like I, what I mentioned with the first John was like that, because there's no personal greetings there, doesn't follow the f- usual format for a letter and, uh, in, the new, in the first century, and the church, and uh, so uh, as we'll, we'll be noting the recipients in this p- uh, particular introduction. And then we'll be noting where this was written from, place of origin, uh, and then also the date, which is tied to it, as we'll see, to the place of origin. We'll be noting the literary genre of this epistle, also the form and structure of this letter, its purpose, and uh, which is very, uh, is very difficult to identify the purpose for a lot of uh, Bible scholars and expositors, so I'm going to try to give my best to tell you what it is. And then we'll be noting the major themes that we find in this epistle. And so all of these things, as I pointed out, Uh, last uh, Tuesday, uh, this past Tuesday, and I I mentioned this before, um, the introductions to these letters, you know, when I, if you read my exegesis and exposition of the different books we've done over the last 25, 30 years, and you listen to the classes or watch the classes, I always do an introduction before every book because the things you bring out in the introduction are very critical to interpreting the book. And, you know, we just, you know, I just showed you, you know, okay, so who are the recipients? Well, it's not that cut and dry yet. It appears to be the, the, the Ephesian church, but it looks like there's more than they were uh, the targets for this letter. And the authorship, which is up for debate now in, uh, in, among a lot of scholars ever since the, the, ni- uh, the 19th century. And uh, so uh, we're gonna, these things are very important issues when we interpret the book. Helps uh, Nailing these things down help us interpret the book. Uh, and so uh, that's why I've always said to you, uh, you know, those who follow me for a long time, you know, not only should you have a couple of different Bible translations, one, one dynamic equivalents like the NIV and then the ESV, the Net Bible for their notes and their translations. Great. The Lexham Bible's great. There's a lot of great translations. You should have some several different translations. And also you should have a Bible dictionary, um, a Bible dictionary, you know, one or two. The Lexham Bible Dictionary is great. Ungers, I used to have that a long time ago. Um, There's Harpers. There's, um, you know, uh, there's just tons of them. And I got all of them because, you know, I'm a pastor and I have, you know, Logos Bible software and I got the, what is it, the Scholar's Library or whatever it is. And so I got all these things. And so the reason why I say get these, you know, get at least one of them is that it'll, let's say, for instance, you want to read up on Ephesians, go to that Bible Dictionary and It'll tell you a lot of the things that I'm going to tell you in this introduction. You see my in my written articles, uh, same things, addressing the same issues. And then you you can go study. It helps you with your own private study with uh, your Bible and help you understand the book you're reading. Read up on these notes by scholars, and then go down and, and start you know banging away and learning the and learning the particular book you're looking at or you're reading. So this just I'm trying to you know help you guys, help people out there in the body of Christ to to you know give some, give them some tips. I understand not everybody's going to be a, a Bible a pastor and a scholar and all that stuff, but this is for everybody. I mean, you, you know, to have a Bible dictionary and several different translations there because it's going to help you and you'll enjoy your study in the Word of God as well. You your private, sanctified time alone with God, and then also you, you go to your church where your pastor is. So you, you, you have, you're you just not just having your own private time alone with yourself in the Word of God. You need to be a part of a church. And, uh, and that's what, you know be a part of the Christian community and serve. So that's uh, we're going to be looking today at the uh, the authorship of this particular epistle, uh, the Ephesian epistle. Which I'm actually once I finish finish this class and upload all these these recordings, I'm going to be working on Ephesians 1.17 and uh, Paul's prayer for the uh, for the recipients of this letter. So let's uh, take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John one nine, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit, which speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So with that in mind, uh, if there's anything that's disturbing and distracting to you, please do what First Peter five seven says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you for those who are joining us live or through the recordings at a later date. I just thank you for each and every person in the body of Christ that is uh, listening or watching uh, these uh, classes. And I just pray, Father, that uh, the technology will function properly. We pray there'll be no problems with the recording the video and the audio and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I pray you'd use them mightily and protect them from the evil one. Thank you for doing so. I also pray, Father, that uh, thank you for the streaming video provided by YouTube. Those who are joining us live, thank you for each and every person. And I just pray, Father, that today your people in the audience, by the power of spirit, will be able to understand what they're being taught and help them to concentrate and to make application. And uh, I also pray that you would help me to be used by your instrument. Help me be humble and sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction and bring forth your full counsel today to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. So Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, amen. If you uh, could turn to Ephesians chapter one, verse one. Ephesians chapter one, verse one. And as I said before, we're gonna be noting the, the, continuing to note the introduction to this uh, letter. We began it on Tuesday. This new book. We have wrapped up the series on sat- last Saturday on the past the teacher, and now we're going to do a series on Ephesians. And we'll probably be in this book at least two years. I would think. I would maybe probably probably more. I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, so uh, maybe not. Maybe it'll be maybe just two two years. It should be. But well, because um, I've done for uh, you know I've done um, Second Thessalonians and First Thessalonians and you know so so I. 1 Thessalonians was five chapters. long. Yeah, it's probably about two or three years to do this book since we're teaching you know, three days a week, so it might go less than three years. So we're gonna be noting a second hour today in this series on Ephesians, and we'll be noting the authorship, as I said before the opening prayer. And uh, so, uh, and I noted to you what we'll be covering in the introduction already before the uh, opening prayer. But uh, if you look at my notes on the board, we're talking about the authorship of Ephesians the traditional view of the church from its inception is that the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians. That is the traditional view of the church. We know this from the church fathers and, and throughout the centuries, different people writing on the book or expositors. It's all, they all everybody, the, the tr- traditional view is that Paul wrote Ephesians. However, like a lot of things in biblical studies, in modern times, starting in like in the 19th century, uh, this view has been challenged. And uh, some of the modern critics today contend that the vocabulary, style, and teaching differ from the writings which are universally accepted as Pauline, and those are the universally accepted as Pauline, or like Romans, you know, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, books like that. Uh, now, the, the the books that are not uh, universally accepted as Pauline today, I mentioned this, is uh, the Pastoral Epistles. Uh, for the simple reason that, you know, they, they think they're pseudonymous, like they do Ephesians. So, um, and we'll talk about that today and, and, and we'll basically refute that again. that has been refuted, but again, people want to believe what they want to believe. There's no evidence for pseudonymous writings being accepted by the church, whether in the New Testament or uh, by the church fathers. And uh, that's just not my opinion. It's fact. That's how it, that's the evidence from the early, early on. So, of course, the modern critics, you got to, you know, they're going to do that. They're going to, they're going to come up with a lot of them are uh, liberal in their theology, and I mean by that is that um, they don't believe in the supernatural. But there's a lot, though, that are evangelical scholars that believe in the resurrection and the supernatural, and they're conservative, we'd say, in their uh, theology. Um, they uh, they believe that the pastoral epistles were not written by Paul, by somebody uh, posing as him that revered him. So we see that uh, some of the modern critics contend that the vocabulary, style, and teaching differ from the writings which are in U- Ephesians, differ from the writings which are uni- universally accepted as Pauline, like Romans and, and Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. They also argue that the letter is pseudonymous, as I pointed out. And uh, for those who are on the podcast, you spell pseudonymous P-S-E-U-D-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. Now the term pseudonymity, Refers to the practice of publishing one's writings under a revered person's name. Now, Ephesians was extensively and indisputably and universally accepted throughout the Roman Empire and the early church as a letter written by Paul, as I said before. Church fathers such as Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, and Origen all regarded the epistle as, of Ephesians as written by Paul. Both Martian and the Moratorium canon. Uh, which we noted, uh, those uh, two works, uh, two lists in the uh, can- series on canonicity, both Martian and Mo- the Moratorian canon list Ephesians as Pauline. Furthermore, Ephesians one one identifies Paul, Paulos, as the author of the epistle to the Ephesians. So, if you look at the the, the NIV, it says in Ephesians one one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, he uses the word in the Greek text, and here's the word in the Greek text: "Paulos." I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. He says, "I don't see how it's any more explicit you can be." Okay, he's saying that, and, and I say this because he sa- gives his name as being the author. So now the burden of proof is on those who cont- uh, contend that it's not really Paul, and you have to have some evidence. The burden of proof is on those critics and they've failed. they failed they, they failed in uh, you know they think because the church fathers all recognizes paul uh the text itself saying it's paul uh the church never accepted pseudonymity as we'll see and we mentioned this the other day so that's pretty big evidence pretty steep but i know there's a lot of people who say well the language and everything we'll address that too he could he's using an amen amen amanuensis a lot of times also, uh, we'll, we'll talk about relationship between Colossians and Ephesians because something that is indication that Paul didn't actually write Ephesians. So we're going to address that in this uh, in this lesson. So, so there it is in the NET Bible that says, "From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." The ESV, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the text is clearly saying that Paul uh, was, uh, Paul wrote this. Now the letter itself contains Paulian language uh, including words that appear not only in this letter but also in the undisputed letters of Paul like Romans again and in Galatians and first and second Thessalonians and yet these words do not appear anywhere else anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. Uh, In typical Pauline fashion, Paul ascribes his pastoral, his apostolic authority to the will of God, as we just read in Ephesians 1 1. He does that in 2 Corinthians 1 1, Galatians 1 1, and Colossians 1 1. So he's doing that in Ephesians, typical thing that Paul did. Paul's name is even found in Ephesians 3 1. It says in Ephesians 3 1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship, of God's grace that was given me for you, that by revelation, the divine secret, the mystery, was made known to me as I wrote before briefly. So notice right in verse 1, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, telling you he was in prison when he wrote this. And so we also see that uh, the structure of the Ephesian epistle is in accordance with the rest of the Pauline corpus. It follows, this letter follows the usual structure of a Pauline letter, which we'll note in our, in this introduction, in detail, the form and structure of the letter, it follows, Ephesians follows the typical, usual structure of a Pauline letter, and that it begins with a salutation, as we just read, followed by a thanksgiving section, then the body of the letter, and ending with final remarks and a benediction. The entire letter is in line with Pauline theology found in his other letters. And as Wood points out, a uh, Bible uh, expositor on Ephesians, Dodd, he says, regarded it as representing the crown of Paulinism, We noted this in our introduction. The Ephesian epistle, so, so let's stop here for a second before we go talk about pseudonymity. I've done, and I've done for the original languages, the exegesis exposition of every word of every, uh, in the text of Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Romans. Um, and uh, so those are the, the Pauline, and, and also, um, I say Colossians, yeah. And 1st, uh, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Okay, so I've done Romans, I've done Colossians, I've done Philippians, I've done First and Second Timothy, and Titus, and uh, and so and now we're doing Ephesians. Now, these Pauline letters, am you know, looking at Ephesians in relation to these other letters. First things first, is uh, Paul did use an amanuensis, but the vocabulary in Ephesians is very it, 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 a lot of like I just said before. A lot of the words he's using in Ephesians, he uses in other his other letters, like that are that are universally accepted by scholars as being Paul. Okay, like Romans or Galatians, the first and second Thessalonians, Those are the other two books I've done, first and second Thessalonians. So I've I've exegeted and looked at every text and clause in that in excruciating detail. Okay, years, and Ephesians it's no question it's Paul. No question in my mind that it's Paul, and as far as language that he's using, it's. He uses typical Pauline language, as I said before. The structure of Ephesians is typical Pauline structure. So talking about the evidence and plus he gives his name as being Paul, as the writer of this letter, and that he's in prison. Okay, so if somebody was, you know, trying to pose as Paul, uh, this is the other thing which kind of blows out the whole thing about Ephesians pseudonymity. If a guy was posing as Paul, because he revered Paul in Ephesians, and he's not really Paul who's saying he's Paul here in Ephesians, right? Why would he mention? Why would he mention that he was in pr- a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Because he, he, I mean, he, he, you're in jail. <laughs> the guy's right, doing a pseudonymous letter, and he's in jail, or he's saying that Paul's in jail. Paul was already dead. Why would he? Wh- and, and if Paul was alive, he would certainly not accept somebody posing him as saying he was him when he wasn't. When the guy wasn't with him, that's why he did the Bene- That's why he did his little mark in the end of Second Thessalonians for that reason. Galatians and Colossians. So, you know, so if he's going to say, if he's, you know, if it's a pseudonymous letter, why in the world would the person use the fact that he's in jail or a prisoner, a prisoner of Christ Jesus? He would not do that, you know, only so just because you're taking a big chance because you can go, this guy's not in jail. Who is this guy? You know, they can confirm that Paul's dead. <laughs> Paul's already died, you know, it's like, you know, years, if he wrote Ephesians years after. You know, uh, you know, like in the in the 70s or 80s or 90s later on, like some might say, you know, he's already dead. So we know it's not Paul. So uh, just kind of crazy. But um, the Ephesian epistle, let's talk about pseudonymity. The Ephesian epistle is not pseudonymous. Uh, it's not a pseudonymous letter because this practice was frowned upon by the early church people. The evidence in the church fathers and in, in the New Testament and Paul's writings, they did not accept it. They would not accept it. A pseudonymous letter, so this is supported by the fact that Paul would guarantee the authenticity of his letters to protect against forgeries or someone posing as him in a letter by putting his own distinguishing mark at the end of the letter. Let's look at. Uh, uh, we'll be looking at Second Thessalonians three seventeen, chapter three, verses seventeen and eighteen, in a second. But I want to show you Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, we just, we did this book, um, we finished this book off last year, I believe, or two years ago. Is it two years ago now? Time flies when you're having fun. But look at 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Now, regarding the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to be with Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not, and let's listen what he says in verse 2, not, not to be easily shaken from your composure or disturbed by any kind of spirit or message or letter allegedly from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not arrive until the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And then, now stop there. Notice he doesn't know how this false doctrine got into Thessalonica and and the Christian community there was exposed to it. That's why he says, I don't care if it's by any kind of spirit or message or letter allegedly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already there. That is not true. And he says that in verse three, he rejects it. And then he goes on to explain why for the next, uh, all the way to verse 12. Okay. So now go to second Thessalonians chapter three, look at verse 16. Paul says, now may the Lord of peace himself, give you peace at all times. And in every way, the Lord would be with you all. Then he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which is how I write in every letter. Why do you think he's doing that? in case that day of the Lord false doctrine came through a letter from somebody was saying that it was him. And that's why he's doing that right there. He's he's ensuring the fact, okay, this is how I write with my own hand. So in the future, you'll know if it's a forgery or it's me. If it has this, my mark on this. So that tells you he was using an amanuensis. So he took the pen and then he signed his name to it. And he sent it off after he had checked the contents and, and see what the amanuensis amanuens put down correctly, the way, what he wanted. And then he'd sign off it, on it. And he'd use his own signature. He did that in Galatians as well. So he's doing this because he wants to ensure against forgeries, pseudonymous letters, in other words. Even if the person has good intentions, the church would not accept it. Certainly Paul would not accept it just by what he said there. And so uh, we see that, uh, look, at, uh, look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, which is, you know, I, I believe Tychicus took Ephesians and Philemon and Colossians and delivered those letters. That's what I believe Tychicus did. And, uh, but uh, here we have, it says in verse 18, and Colossians, was right down the road from Ephesus. I, Paul, this is the end of Colossians. We study this book too in detail. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Why is he doing this? To protect against pseudonymous letters. Uh, Look at Galatians. Let me see if I can get you Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter six, the end of the chapter. So look at Galatians. Let's look at verse uh, eleven. Paul says, "Galatians six 11, See what big letters I make as I write to you with my own hand. So he's he he's, he wants to know that this is my writing, and I'm I, I don't I I don't want anybody forging my letters, uh, forging something something, and telling you that I'm that they're that I'm. I don't want anybody saying that they're me. I want you to know that uh, that you'll see my authenticating mark on my letters, which will ensure against forgeries, that you're actually getting the real thing when you get this letter, and that it is from me. So that's what, uh, uh, that, that, so therefore, that the, we know that the even Paul himself and the church in the first century did not accept pseudonymous letters. So go back to Ephesians, chapter one, verse one. So again, the Ephesian epistle is not pseudonymous because the practice was frowned upon by the early church, and this is supported by the fact, again, that Paul would guarantee the authenticity of his letters to protect against forgeries or someone posing as him in a letter by putting his own distinguishing mark at the end of the letter, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 3.17 and 18, Galatians 6.11 and Colossians 4.18. Furthermore, as we noted, Paul identifies himself, as we just pointed out earlier in the lesson, as the author of this letter which bears his name and there's no evidence whatsoever that this epistle is written by someone else. The existence of the practice of synonymity in the ancient world is not disputed because it's well documented. It was used in Greco-Roman cultures as a literary means of drawing it on ancient authorities to address contemporary situations. And this process was accepted and understood and was not considered something that was deceptive in Greco-Roman society in the first century. However, you can't apply this to Christianity. As we can see with Paul, Tertullian, in fact, describes an an early church father came after the apostles. Tertullian describes an elder, a pastor, who has falsely written under the name of Paul in an attempt to uh, increase Paul's fame because he loved Paul. You know what they did to him? They threw him out of office. They threw him. They excommunicated him. And that's on Tertullian's on baptism. They removed him from office because of this, even though he revered Paul and he wanted Paul's name to increase, fame to increase. They did not accept that kind of behavior, that, that kind of practice. So the early church was very much concerned about receiving authentic Pauline epistles and would totally reject the practice of pseudonymity. The early church, as we pointed out, was very concerned with problems of literary fraud, and Paul was too, as we can see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 and Galatians 6 11. And now some critics, though, contend that. That, the, that Ephesians is pseudonymous because the contents are impersonal in nature they argue that we would expect that Paul's lengthy stay in Ephesus would prompt him to send personal greetings in this epistle good point good point there it's he does not you would think he would exp- have personal greetings in the letter when he stayed in Ephesus for three years right why in the world is no personal le- uh, greetings there well that's easy to refute as well and explain the absence of personal greetings and specific issues and conditions supports the idea that the Ephesian epistle is a circulatory letter, a circular letter intended intended for all the various house churches in the Roman province of Asia. So though he doesn't have personal greetings, that can be explained. It's a, it's a letter that is a circular letter encyclical letter they call it, meaning it's not just directed to Ephesus, but it was, it's directed to all the churches in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, look at First John. John doesn't have any personal greetings in First John, and uh, and he doesn't even identify a church. It's it's a it's a it's a circular letter. That's why, and he probably went to those seven churches of Asia that you see in Revelation two and three, and I believe Ephesians was going to those same exact churches as as uh, as um, Revelation was and First John was for that matter. H. J. Cadbury, an expositor, he posed the following question. He says. Which is more likely, that an imitator of Paul in the first century composed a writing 90 or 95% in accordance with Paul's style, or that Paul himself wrote a letter diverging 5 or 10% from his usual style? <laughs> Lastly, the scholars who reject Pauline authorship of Ephesians because of the close relationship between this letter and Colossians, they argue that it could not be possible for one person to write two letters which resemble each other so strikingly. And you can compare Ephesians 6, 21 and 22 with Colossians 4, 7 and 8. And yet, how can they have significant differences? Like Colossians 2, 2, when you compare that with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. So again, the the, the critics argue that it could not be possible for one person to write two letters which resemble each other so strikingly and yet have significant differences. And Guthrie, an expositor from the past, he says the following good point. He says, that two minds could not have produced two such works with so much subtle interdependence blended with independence. Furthermore, as Skeventing Wood writes, would an imitator have dealt so freely with the text of Colossians? Is it not probable that he would have adhered more slavishly to the script? It is when an author borrows from himself that he can take liberties with what is after all his own material. Let me give you a, a quote for some other people. Here and let me uh, find it here. Uh, there's a few people here. I want. I want to. This. This is my article on Ephesians that'll be going on our website pretty soon for the introduction. And um, there's a couple of guys I want to get. Uh, got Cadbury for you, but let me give you. Where are they? Here, Harold Honer. Harold Honer says the following. Great, great uh, scholar, and uh, he talks about this issue of pseudonymity with Ephesians, and he's he's got a number of commentaries on Ephesians He passed away not too long ago and he did a great thing on the, the, uh, Christ in the chronological thing with his, with his ministry. and uh, he is a great scholar and he, I love, I love Honer because and guys like him because he really goes in, into detail, he brings out the arguments, different interpretive issues, presents those the different views, and then nails down the one he thinks is right and gives you reasons. I, I, that's what I like to do. And he's very exhaustive, and, I, and and he's very thorough. And I like to be thorough, too, and or at least I try to be thorough. And so he's one of those kind of guys that, I like, wow, he, 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 was, he was a giant as far as, as far as I'm concerned. We need more guys like him out there. But uh, he says the following. Honor writes twice in the epistle. Paul referred to himself by the name as the author of the book, as I pointed out. Yet the Paulian authorship of Ephesians has been greatly disputed in recent years. Some critics think that the book reflects aspects of a vocabulary, style, and doctrine that differ from Paul's writings. Though the book has a close affinity with Colossians, critics claim that Ephesians is uncharacteristic of Paul. They suggest that the book was pseudonymous, that it was written by someone who did not know, use his own name, but who instead claimed to be Paul. However, as Hona says, pseudonymity was not the practice of the, by the early Christians. Also, this book is regarded by many as the crown of all Paul's writings. Thus, it seems strange that a disciple of Paul would be greater than Paul in theological and spiritual perception. Good point, right? Then he says, lastly, he says, furthermore, Ephesians was extensively and undisputably accepted in the early church as Paul's letter. There's no strong reason for rejecting the Pauline authorship of Ephesians. Peter O'Brien another great uh, scholar, he says the following, he says, in keeping with the convention of his time, the author begins by announcing himself as the Apostle Paul. Further, the letter contains many personal notes. The writer had heard of the reader's faith and love. He gives thanks and praise for them and he calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus and he asks for his readers intercessions on his behalf. The man who claims to be Paul was known to the readers and was confident that his claim would not be overthrown. We should hold anyone who claims to be the author of any letter coming to us from antiquity to be just that, unless there's very strong evidence to the contrary. And uh, and uh, that's the end of the quote I want to give you. So I could give you more, but uh, so we see here that the letter is not pseudonymous. pseudonymous. It's, it's It was written by Paul, and the burden of proof is on the critics to come up with the sufficient evidence to overthrow that view, which has always been, as I said before, the church's view. And this, so in the final analysis, in the final analysis, I say in my notes, the Epistle of Ephesians should be regarded as written by Paul because the authenticity of the letter cannot be disproven. So all this, you know, it's, you see this in a lot of like uh, biblical scholarship, in the um, you know, like you know take uh, first, second t- t- uh, Timothy and Titus, it's majority of biblical scholarship and conservative evangelical scholarship, they think those letters are pseudonyms. Now. Uh, and now many are thinking that Ephesians is, and that was never the view. Nobody in the off almost two thousand years in the church, great men of God and men who were much closer to the the original autographs in time, uh, were were all in agreement that Paul wrote the letter. It was bundled with Paul's letters in the early church catalogs, canon lists, as I, as I pointed out. um, they all, and Paul actually gives his name here. And O'Brien makes point that they, they knew he was, you know, he asked for prayers from them. He knew, he heard about their faith and their love. Uh, and uh, so he was, you know, and so he it, the burden of proof is you have to have some kind of evidence for that. And the church never accepted pseudonymous letter. Paul in his own writings didn't want that to happen. He, he protected against forgery by giving his own authenticating mark at the end of his letters. Like in 2 Thessalonians, as we point, point out in Colossians. That means he didn't like pseudonymous letters. They'd rejected it. They threw a... Tertullian, as I pointed out before, pointed out that the guy, uh, that uh, he was posing as Paul, revered Paul, wanted to increase Paul's fame, and he posed as Paul in a letter, and they threw him out. They excommunicated him. Even though he he wasn't trying to, uh, you know, know, disparage Paul, uh, he wanted to increase Paul's fame, so he still was thrown out. So the evidence is, you know... Overwhelming that this is the case that this is not a pseudonymous letter that Paul did in fact write this letter. So, what about the Apostle Paul? Who who is this guy? You know. So let's take a little peek at the first uh, 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 mention of Paul in Scripture. Really, look at Acts chapter eight. Look at Acts chapter eight, verse one. Now, Paul—we know him by Paul—but his name, his Hebrew name, was Saul, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. as He puts out, and uh, we'll look at Philippians in a, in a few moments. But uh, Saul was—he was the top celebrity in Judaism at the time. He was a great scholar. He came from a, a, a city called Tarsus. Uh, he, he came from there, and he was—that uh, was a very Hellenized city. He was—he was a Hellenized Jew, but yet at the same time. He was a, a, a fa- his father was a rabbi. It was it was a um, was a Pharisee, <laughs> and he, in Tarsus, what's interesting about Tarsus is that Mark Antony in 42 B.C. Uh, he declared the, C- the, the city of Tarsus a free city, which means everybody in the city got t- it, it, it citizenship. I believe I I used to believe that because his father was a tent maker, and I say he, his father was a tent maker because Paul learned tent making from his uh, trade, and it had to be from his father who was a tent maker, but uh, we see that. Uh, yeah, no, actually, I believe it was because Mark Antony gave the city um, a free city status you know, after the assassination of uh, Gaius Jesus Caesar in 42 BC. Mark Antony, uh, he, uh, he, he said, Tarsus is now a free city. And, and so everybody in the city got citizenship, including Paul's parents and Paul when he was born. So, uh, and it's a very intellectual center. It was a big intellectual center in the ancient world, Tarsus was. A Great center of learning. And so he was a Jew that, uh, being in that city was very good because it, 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 it served him well, uh, as the apostle to the Gentiles because he knew the Gentile philosophies and everything and, and the language, you know, the Greek language, Koine Greek language. He had a tremendous intellect. You can see that from his writings. But, uh, so Tarsus, he came from a a pretty top-notch city and he, more than likely went to school there you can tell by his you know and he was and he was his father was a it was a pharisee so he was a a very well schooled uh he was he was uh someone who was the only apostle really that was ever formally trained you know none of the jews uh uh, none of jesus disciples were rabbinically trained but paul was not one was rabbinically trained they're all fishermen and Tax collectors and whatnot, but no, yeah. But we see that uh, Paul was really the only one who we would say is formally trained, Uh, and so uh, uh, quite interesting. But Saul was the name he used among his, you know, his countrymen, the Jews, and then you know his Greek name would be Paulus, which uh, Paul, which uh, he used when he was dealing with the Gentiles in the Gentile churches when he was planting churches. So look at Acts chapter eight, verse one. This is in reading the Net Bible. This is when. He was yet an unbeliever, but a, a, a quite a, a zealous person trying to stamp out Christianity because he didn't think Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Uh, because he was killed by the the the, the Jewish executed, um, condemned by the Jewish leaders and uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, and uh, he was executed by the Romans. And uh, he did, like a lot of Jews at the time, he didn't see their Messiah being crucified, as Jesus said to, the, to his disciples on the road to Emmaus in uh, Luke twenty four yeah, if you knew your Old Testament, it's there. I'm, I'm, the Messiah is supposed to die and then rise from the dead. So it says in, in Acts 8.1, Saul agreed completely with killing him. And that that's talking about in context, Stephen, who had the great speech before the, the the people. And he basically said, you're all stiff-necked like your your forefathers were for rejecting Jesus. Now on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And some devout men buried Steve Stephen and made a loud, lam- loud lamentation over him. But Saul was trying to destroy the church, entering one house after another. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now that's the Jewish community. Okay? The, the, early, the, the Gentiles didn't start flocking to Jesus until Acts chapter 10, as, as, we'll, as we see. So the, the Jews who were believing in Jesus they were being persecuted. And just like Jesus said, that would happen. And Saul was leading the persecution. Okay? So, let's pop over now to Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he was going along approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he said, who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but stand up and enter the city and you will be told what you must do. Notice that Jesus said, you're persecuting me by persecuting my disciples. So that's the body of Christ principle. You know, you, you what you do to another believer, you're doing to Jesus. So be careful what you do to another believer. Say, now verse seven. Now the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Kind of like Daniel with uh, in the book of Daniel. So Saul verse eight got up from the ground and but although his eyes were open he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, his companions brought him. They brought him into Damascus for three days. And he could not see and neither ate nor drank anything. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he replied, here I am Lord. And the Lord told him, get up and go to the street called straight. And at Judas's house, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he's praying. And he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him so that he may see again. I love Ananias's response. Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to imprison all who call on your name. (laughs) Good question. Why are we doing this, Lord? (laughs) This guy is killing people. You're killing your disciples. Why would I want to do this? Well, listen to what the Lord says. But the Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that's Paul's ministry right there. He would suffer much for the cause of Christ more than any man in history. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales from his, fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, his strength returned. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, This man is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and were saying, Is this not the man who in Jerusalem was ravaging those who call on this name and who had come here to bring them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul became more and more capable and was causing consternation among the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And then after some days, the Jews plotted together to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot against him. They were also watching the city gates day and night so they could kill him. But his disciples took him at night and led him down to an opening in the wall by lowering him in a basket. So he has all this knowledge of the Old Testament, right? And now he's got the Holy Spirit. Now he really can understand it. Now he can see the Lord Jesus Christ had fulfilled, Jesus of Nazareth had fulfilled the, the all the prophecies related to the first advent of the Messiah. And so here's Paul and he became, he was very powerful. But now, because he, yes, he had the knowledge of the scriptures, but now he really understood them because now he had the gift of the Holy Spirit to help them understand it as the way they need to be understood. So he has all this memorization of all this Old Testament. Now it's really going to make him powerful. God can really use this guy quite powerfully. So he was, um, now that he had the gift of the Spirit, his justification through faith in Jesus, now he became an enemy of the devil. Prior to that, he was was a child of the devil and trying to wipe out Christianity. He was the first and foremost at doing that. So uh, let's, uh, let's look at uh, some other autobiographical uh, text in the New Testament where Paul talks about himself. Look at the Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Then he says, "Beware the dogs! Beware the evil workers! Beware of those who mutilate the flesh." That is speaking of the Judaizers, because they were telling people to to uh, circumcise themselves. Those in the Gentile Christian community to circumcise themselves. That's what Galatians was all about. That's what Act fifteen was all about. They were Jewish Christians, the Judaizers, who were trying to get Gentile Christians to go adhere to the law. That's the first church council was all about that. So here are these guys. And they were doing this. And so that's why he dis- he describes them in such derogatory terms in verse two. And so in the book of Galatians, is all about these guys. Now it says in verse three, for we are the circumcision, the Christian, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, exalt in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials like the Judaizers do. Though mine are too are significant. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. Now he gets autobiographical. Look, what he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. All Jewish baby boys, including Jesus, you were circumcised in the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel, so he's not a proselyte. And the tribe of Benjamin, the great warrior tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he's a Hebrew-speaking Jew from Hebrew-speaking parents. He was not a Hellenistic Jew, I, though he knew Hellenism pretty well. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. So he was not even that, he was a Pharisee, okay, in the top echelons of Jewish society in the first century in Judea. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in law, I was blameless. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all these things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know Him, to experience the power of His resurrection, to share in His sufferings, and to be like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So there he's saying, in verse, he's talking in verses five and six, he's talking about His credentials. He was a Pharisee. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was not a Jewish proselyte. He was from Israel. His, uh, he was a Hebrew speaking Jew from Hebrew speaking parents. He actually persecuted the, uh, the church of Jesus Christ, the church of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, the Christian community, okay, in his zeal. So look at First Timothy now, chapter 1. Look at First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was leaving for Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teachings, nor to occupy themselves with myths and interminable genealogies, Such things promotes useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. These are, he's talking about is the Judaizers again, but the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Now he's going to describe the opponents in this letter that that Timothy wants, he wants Timothy to avoid or deal with, uh, actually to discipline actually. Uh, and he describes them, and the description means, indicates that they're clearly the Judaizers, Jewish Christians, in apostasy, thinking that they had to keep the law as the way of the spiritual life. And so it says in verse 6, some have strayed from these and turned away to empty discussion. They want to be teachers of the law. There you go. But they do not understand what they're saying. They misinterpreted the use of the law or the things that they insist on so confidently. But we know that the law is good if someone uses it legitimately, realizing that law is not intended for a righteous person, but for lawless and rebellious people to show them that they're sinners and God's holy and the need for the Savior. For the ungodly and sinners it's for, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral people, practicing homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, in fact, for any who live a contrary to sound teaching. This accords with the glorious gospel of the blessed God that was entrusted to me. He says, I'm grateful, now look what he says, I am grateful to the one who has strengthened me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he considered me faithful in putting me into ministry. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an arrogant man, but I was treated with mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And our Lord's grace was abundant, bringing faith and love in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he says, and I was the worst of them because he led the onslaught against Christianity uh, in, in, after Jesus' resurrection and session at the, at the right hand of the Father after the day of Pentecost. But here's why I was treated with mercy so that in me, as the worst, Christ Jesus could demonstrate his utmost patience as an example for those who are going to believe Him in him for eternal life. So in other words, if Jesus could save me, Paul says, he could save anybody because I was the chief of sinners. I was arrogant, thought I was doing God's will in my zeal. I was k- killing Christians and persecuting Christians. And when I thought I was serving God, I really wasn't because I was arrogant and I was arrogant and blind like the majority of our people, the Jewish community, he was saying, who rejected Jesus of Nazareth as their savior. As, as Paul says in Corinthians, uh, the veil is over their eyes so that they can't see that Jesus is the Messiah. And they that they 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 uh, they crucified. Well, that's the Apostle Paul. A little brief uh, uh, study on Paul, and also uh, answering the question: uh, Is Paul actually the author of this letter? We we came to that conclusion. Yes, he is. And uh, we had some uh, little autobiographical material that we read from Paul, and also, of course, uh, the book of Acts and his conversion to Christianity, his belief in Jesus as Savior, which led, resulted in his justification. So. Uh, we're going to, uh, in the next uh, next uh, lesson, uh, we're going to, uh, to talk about, let's see what I have here for you coming up, just so I look at my, my computer here. We have, uh, next we're going to note the identity of the recipients of this letter, and then uh, next week also be, uh, on Tuesday, next Tuesday, we'll be noting the place of origin of Ephesians, the date in the, in the literary genre, and then on next Thursday, We'll be knowing the form and structure of the Ephesian epistle. And again, on Saturday, we're, we'll be looking, uh, identifying who the recipients of this letter was because that's a little tricky, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So, uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll pick this up on Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Central time. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for joining me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your Word, and we thank you for this study in Ephesians. We pray that this study today, with regards to the authorship of Ephesians, will be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name we pray, amen.